the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. How wonderful it is to hear that gospel in uh, the Queen's English this morning. Uh, what a great joy. Uh, Deacon Terrence Sims, welcome. Uh, it's a joy to have you here with us this morning with your family as part of the baptismal family and to read the gospel for us. We greatly, greatly appreciate that. In the first part of his book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey conducts an exercise. And I'm going to try and see if we can conduct that exercise uh, together with you this morning. And so on one of the first pages, he shows this picture where I think you might see a lovely lady with a thing above her hair and a shawl and all that sort of stuff. And you see her there um, and she's all there. She's like maybe 20 something years old. Um, she, he describes her in great length about that. And then as the, church, as the book goes on a little bit further, he shows another picture, and of that picture he shows a bit of an older woman, about 70 years old perhaps, and hunched over a bit and uh, back like that. And then he says, look back at the first picture, and do you see her? Can you see the older woman now in the picture of the younger woman? Do you see them both? Can you see them both? Flip them one more time. There's the older woman, and now just see that you can see her. Flip it back so you can see her in the picture. And your eyes can switch it back and forth, can't they? I hope they can. All of a sudden, sure enough, you see that older woman. You didn't see her at first, maybe. Some uh, might, but you can see that there's two ways to look at the same picture. And you see something different. You see the older woman. For Covey, this uh, highlights from the power of a paradigm shift. And the way that you've seen something and the way you've seen it always and looked at it, that all of a sudden you might look again and sure enough you can see it from a different perspective, a different paradigm. Well, I thought of his book and this uh, demonstration this week as I've prepared for the first of our series uh, after the introduction last week of our signs in the Gospel of John, the, the seven signs that are in John. And what dis John describes this morning is the first of his signs, the changing of water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Now, of course, this is a very familiar event in the life of Jesus. At the opening of every wedding ceremony, we remind the congregation that Jesus established the bond and covenant of marriage, and he adorned this manner of life by his presence and his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. In the season of Epiphany, each January, we read often this lesson as part of that, because John goes on to say there in verse 11 that Jesus manifested his glory. So it's the, it's the time when we read this lesson. Epiphany, that season of manifestation, and it all makes sense. And it, and it works to read this story in the season of Epiphany. And so I'm suggesting this morning that so like the picture, we see this event from that perspective, a wedding, manifestation in a season of Epiphany. We, that's how we see it. Well, now this morning, I want to try and help us see it from a different sort of perspective, a different paradigm of this same story. 
and shift our focus a bit as we'll see how John strategically and intentionally began his gospel with his first sign and he uses all of the signs to point to the to Jesus as we learned last Sunday John tells us in chapter 20 why he wrote the book why he wrote his gospel he says now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name so in this first sign he's intentionally included he specifically wants to point us to Jesus and what he's done and what he will do as far as in their time but for us what he's done but to begin with let me briefly describe the events um, as perhaps most often we think of them um, and then we'll go back and we'll try to look at it with this other paradigm just so we're, we're on the same page so I'm gonna suggest that sort of typically our normal angle in which we look at this story is that Jesus his mother the disciples go to a wedding the wine runs out Jesus's mother tells him the wine has run out to which she says to him woman what does this have to do with me my hour has yet to come Jesus has the servants fill the water jars with water they take some to the master he tasted and sure enough the water has been turned to wine the master tells the bridegroom everyone serves good wine first but not you you serve at last the good until now so we come away and we say Jesus has revealed himself in a miraculous power to the disciples and the wine of new life in him it's over and it's about it's over abundant and that's pretty much the story now let me say that's all true it's all correct just just as the picture was of a young 21 year old girl it, it, it was there it's true there is that picture this this true the story that we know and that we're familiar with and the paradigm in which we look at this story is true and correct but there's more there's more that John wants us to see to begin with I want to think about it for a second as I've been I've been pondering it um, all week and I'm thinking if I was going to tell you a story this morning about a wedding feast where something embarrassing was gonna happen and then miraculously it was fixed what might be one of the first things and perhaps an important thing that I would mention that I would highlight that I would explain to you I'm not really looking for an answer I'm just asking you to think what 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 might what might be I'll say it what might be missing what what's not said there with that that perhaps if I was gonna tell you a story that I would tell you well I'll never forget one of my family's extended families weddings now many years ago it was a long time ago so many years ago there were no digital cameras there were no cell phones there was nothing of that like whatsoever there was really one woman who was the photographer my family had always used for taking pictures at weddings and other events that she was the go-to person who take all the pictures now I don't know if it was because of the number of people at this particular wedding or a miscalculation on her part but she ran out of film about halfway through the reception and she didn't know what to do 
as you might imagine, she was pretty embarrassing, embarrassed. So um, not knowing what to do, she went to my brother, who advised her to just simply continue taking pictures with no film in the camera, telling her that no one would know the difference or remember. She did, and no one was embarrassed. But I told you it was my family, right? I told you my brother was there, right? I told you we knew the photographer, and when we tell the story amongst my family, we all talk about the bride and the groom. I decided best not to share that with you this morning, but we all, we all know. We know the players. We know everybody that's a part of the story. Now, very often when you read some commentary about this wedding in Cana, you'll learn about how, what a big embarrassment it would be to run out of wine in a community where the, the wedding celebration would last several days and they'd party and they'd have all sorts of stuff and that the family would be an embarrassment, it would be embarrassing to them. But John doesn't mention the bride. He doesn't mention the groom. He doesn't mention their family. You see, for him, something more important is happening than a wedding faux pas. There's much more going on. This is simply a sign that he's using to point us to something greater. So the details that we might think we would normally include, they're not there. So let's go back to the text for a second and look and see those things that perhaps from a different paradigm we didn't see before. Chapter 2, verse 1 begins... On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Did you hear it? On the third day. The third day. Resurrection. John doesn't even wait to get into the details of the wedding and the crisis and the problem to point us to where he's going, to the right direction. We get our first clue that this wedding isn't really What's on John's agenda? What's, what's really on John's agenda is the third day, the resurrection. That's where he's pointing us to. Chris Dieters writes, weddings function in the Jewish tradition as a metaphor for heaven. So we already in John's gospel by chapter 2 have found Jesus referred to as the Son of God in chapter 1, that he's come down from heaven. We have a reference to the resurrection on the third day. We have a marriage, a code for the coming of the kingdom of God. So we know glory is about to happen. Glory is about to be revealed in the midst of this very story. Well, so then the crisis occurs. The wine runs out. Yes, this wedding has a crisis, but, but more than that. There's more to this than just that crisis. Jesus' mother comes to him and says what we might find a bit uh, harsh or an awkward interchange, right? Mary says, they have no wine. Jesus says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So what's really going on? One scholar highlights two other occasions where this term, what sometimes we find a bit offensive maybe or like disrespectful, where Jesus calls his mother woman. Back 
in Genesis chapter 3. After they have disobeyed and eaten the fruit, and God comes to them and now announces their punishment. He he first tells the serpent that what his punishment will be, and then he says to the woman, to the woman, and then to Adam. You see, it's not till after that discussion, after that punishment given to the woman, is she named Eve. It's after that that this comes. And then on the cross, you'll remember Jesus hanging on the cross and there again, his mother and John, the beloved disciple, are both at the feet. And Jesus speaks to her and he refers to her as woman, behold your son. Woman, behold your son. When he gives his care of his mother to John. See, Jesus came to do his father's will to restore what was lost our relationship with God what happened in that garden what separated us what caused the woman to be separated what we have this morning is a sign pointing to the cross where Mary and all of us can receive God's grace While Mary was looking in this particular instance to rescue a wedding, Jesus was here to rescue us. He highlights this distinction by referring not to her as as in her name or as his mother, but as woman, because she represents us. Throughout the seven signs, several times we'll hear Jesus say, my time has yet to come. And then it will be after that seventh sign in chapter 11 where he'll begin the journey to his cross. So, so we're going to find these seven signs are all building and building and building to a crescendo when they get to chapter 11 with the story of the raising of Lazarus. And the hinge will turn there in chapter 12 and we'll find in chapter 12 he'll say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This sign builds and begins the direction towards that hour. Still, Jesus demonstrates his love and his grace by providing this needed wine. And he does so in a way that continues to point to the purpose that his father had for him. I think it's sort of a sidebar, but I I don't want any of us to miss Mary's interaction with Jesus and how it applies to us. Mary comes and says, they've run out of wine. Jesus, of course, says, what does it have to do with me? And she says, just tell them what to do. Good principles, just a footnote for us this morning. Ask Jesus what I want, but yield to what he knows is best and right. She asks to do what she wants him to do, but yet she submits to what he knows is best and what is right. Sort of a sidebar for us this morning I don't want us to miss. So Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. So there, standing, were six empty stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification. We note the jars are empty. Empty, symbolizing their ineffectiveness. Though they're huge, 20 to 30 gallons, though they are filled over and over and over, they run dry and they're ineffective and they do not accomplish the purification that it needed. They are not the vessels of grace and truth according to this story. Only Jesus' sign 
the water turned into wine points us in the proper direction. Because you see, it points us to the crucifixion. In chapter 19, John will tell of how the water and the blood would pour from his side on the cross. Wine, red blood, the water now turned into wine. It's a sign. It's the blood shed on the cross for us. Those old purification rites of the law won't do. No, it requires the shed blood of Christ, his death on the cross and resurrection. How special it is then and how appropriate and how how powerful that we celebrate the sacrament of baptism this morning. By God's grace, we come to him in faith this morning, placing our trust in the completed work on the cross through the shedding of his own blood. And the empty jars of our lives that are not been cleansed and pure are filled to the brim with life-giving joy. Isn't it thrilling to see what this sign is really pointing to? It's not so much about a wedding. It's celebrating what, what we're about this morning, that infilling new life, that forgiveness that God gives when he changes our lives from that water to the wine. When we realize the greatness of our need, the emptiness of all those water vessels that won't begin to cover our need, yet how much more he provides filling the jugs to the brim. Wow. When the master of the feast has tasted the wine, he's blown away. He had no idea the water had turned to wine or where it came from. Of course, John makes sure that we know where the, that the disciples and the servants do know and what the sign pointed to. The disciples didn't miss. John concludes uh, this story by saying, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That's the goal of this sign, is that we believe in him. So this morning, once again, we've heard a, a very familiar story, but we've kind of looked at it from a new paradigm of, of pointing, of a sign pointing us sort of like the picture we may remember it as the young woman but now now do we see this story pointing you and me as his disciples that we might believe in him and it points where in our lives and do you see his glory this morning revealed in the story do you know that the sign calls you to embrace the only hope that we have, the only hope for new life, the only hope for change, the only hope for forgiveness. You can no more change your life than the water itself could change to wine. We must come to Christ for change. And by changing the water into the wine, he gives you a sign pointing for you and for me to his willingness, his desire to change our hearts, to change your hearts. And are you tasting his wine Last week I pointed out that John has two groups of people in mind when he shares his signs. The first is those who don't know him, to come and to embrace him, to see him, to have him revealed in your life and to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And for those who do, to experience the fullness of his grace and his mercy. To know what John says in 1010, that we would have life and live it to the fullest. Anthony Salvaggio writes about these signs. He says, Jesus is calling you to exchange the water of your own self for the wine of his righteousness and to live into the fullness of his overflowing 
abundant grace. You know, the first sign was performed at a wedding in Cana. And John in the book of Revelation will tell of another wedding where this time Jesus will not be the guest, he'll be the host. And here this morning, this first sign, this wedding in Cana points to our own salvation and eternity at the celebration of the land, of the wedding feast of the Lamb in his presence where you and I will rejoice and celebrate together. All of it pointed from this first sign, pointing to that time. May the eyes of our faith be open to see this sign this morning. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this powerful sign that your servant John gives to us in his gospel this morning, that we might see you in all your glory, that we might taste the wine of your new life. We might be reminded this morning in this baptismal service of the grace that you have poured down richly upon us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.